Well, to set the context here in Zechariah chapter 8, uh, Judah was 70 years there in Babylon, then they uh, returned, or some of them returned, uh, to rebuild the, the temple. And they laid the foundation stone, and y- you've got that uh, alluded to uh, down here in chapter 8, uh, verse 9, when he talks about the prophets who were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. But then there was uh, various problems, and they didn't get on with the work. And then Haggai and Zechariah come along and and try and encourage them. And Haggai is far more critical than Zechariah, even though he was only, if you compare Haggai 1 verse 1 and Zechariah 1 verse 1, he was only prophesying a couple of months before Zechariah. He says that you came back expecting to have a good life, expecting to have good harvests, and you got on with building your own house rather than the house of God. And therefore, he said, Haggai said, and therefore God has sent you famine. Now it's true that Artaxerxes um, <clears throat> actually stopped them uh, building, according to Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Um, <clears throat> but I would say that that decree that he passed to stop them rebuilding was in fact really God's way of confirming them in the position that they themselves had adopted. They started mixing with the Gentiles, they started arguing amongst themselves, and everyone just looked after themselves. And God's work, the work of rebuilding the the kingdom, just simply didn't happen. And yet God had enabled this to happen. And so I think here in Zechariah 8, God is saying, okay, I'm going to have yet another go with you. He says in verse 2, I was jealous for Zion, that is Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. In that you see the the huge enthusiasm of God that was behind the, the rebuilding of, of his kingdom and of, of the temple. And so it is really with us, whatever you put your hand to, that God is behind, particularly uh, works of care and service for his people, uh, spreading the gospel, there is a huge desire of God to make it work and to provide all the resources and strength that you will need for that. Now, you can get the impression from verse 2, as some people do, that God is kind of an angry God who's sort of mad all the time. Uh, But that is not the case. I mean, the Bible reveals God on every page, really, as a God of love. And that love is, in the end, his defining characteristic. God is love. But because he has such love, just like you learn from the book of Hosea, when that love is abused and when that love is rejected, uh, then inevitably he is going to have these moments and periods of anger, of great fury, as he puts it here. That is normal, and that is to be expected if really God is love to the huge extent that he, he claims to be and that he is. And so really those who say, well, I want uh, God to be a God of love and I don't want all this uh, outbursts of anger from him, I don't think they really have got it at all clear uh, <laughs> what love means and what it is to be passionate if God is indeed, as he says, full of such love and consuming passion for his people and a desire for his work to be done, then of course he is also, by that same token, going to have these uh, moments of anger when that love is 
refused and it is rejected and abused. Now he says in verse 3, I am returned unto Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Well, who returned to Zion? It was those rather spiritually weak, I would say, uh, exiles who returned, because most of them didn't return, but those who did return, according to Haggai, were really looking out for what benefit they could get by getting free land and looking forward to great harvests and good crops, etc. And yet, all the same, God returned with them. And he says that I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the temple mount, will be the holy mountain. At the end of Ezekiel 48, you've got uh, all the commands about how to rebuild the temple, and then it says that the temple will be called, or the city will be called, Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. So I see those chapters there in Ezekiel as really describing the potential that there was. They are the commands of how the city was to be rebuilt, how the temple was to be rebuilt, and God returned there with those people that, who did return. And again, Ezekiel sees that when he sees the visions of the cherubim, that the cherubim mount up and, and go away from Jerusalem when the people go into captivity. They're sitting there by the rivers of Babylon, and then the cherubim appear to show that God is even there with them in Gentile Babylon, and then they lift up their feet, the cherubim, and return to, to Zion. And Ezekiel is picked up by a lock of his head and taken there himself. So I think the point is that those people who started out on that journey, who left Babylon for the wrong motives, all the same, God was with them, and his presence was very much with them. Now, this, I think, is true of us in our response to the call that we have had to rebuild God's kingdom, to do the work of the kingdom, that whatever poor motives we may have had when we started out on this journey, God was still with us, and he, as it were, is as the cherubim hovering over us. And as I keep saying, the, the amount of potential uh, power which there is in, in what God is willing to do with us is amazing. But the more we, we sit around uh, and just mope, as they were doing, I think, uh, at this time, we can't do this, we can't do that, Artaxerxes made a decree telling us to stop building, there's so much rubble, we can't shift the rubble, every possible reason. Mountains became molehills, and some mountains were really mountains. Um, but they fail to see the, the huge presence of God uh, behind them and the passion of God to make it work. So then, in the same way as God had returned there, he says, so the people had returned. He was with them, even though, as I say, their motives were so, so weak, it, it seems. Now, verse 6 if it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes? says the Lord of hosts. In other words, because you think that it's so difficult and unlikely that uh, I could do this, that's because you yourselves think that I am just a kind of a superman. I am just a bit more capable than you. And because it's impossible for you, therefore you think it's impossible for me. This reminds me very much of the Lord's discourse with the, the father of the sick child in Mark uh, I think it's nine, where the the child uh, is is sick and the the father comes and says, Lord, if you can do anything, well, you know, please do. 
And Jesus turns it around and says, no, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, it's limited by you, not by me. My potential is unlimited, uh, but it depends on your faith. And so it's, I think, the same here, that these people thought that it was just too incredible that this could happen. And God is saying, because you think it's too incredible, doesn't mean that it's too incredible for me to do this. You've got to recognize that I am not limited as you are. And this is, I think, our great uh, tendency and temptation to consider God as a sort of a superman, that he is a bit more powerful than man. But we don't kind of quite grasp the degree to which God is in a completely different league, that he can do absolutely all things, as Jesus said to that father of the sick child. Now, there is throughout this chapter, and so often in Zechariah, the implication that God, if you like, mechanically is doing his work through the angels. He says here in this um, Verse 6, should this be marvellous in my eyes? Now the eyes of the Lord are that, that run around all over the earth, as we've seen earlier in Zechariah. These are his angels. And in verse uh, 1 and very often, uh, verse 2, very often here uh, in this chapter and throughout Zechariah, you read of the Lord of hosts, not just Yahweh, but Yahweh of armies, armies of angels, I, I would say. And the idea that I, the Lord, Yahweh, have returned unto Zion. As I said, this is connected with the cherubim of Ezekiel returning there, and the cherubim again are a kind of an angelic system. That's how I would uh, describe them. And so, and then, uh, you know, verse 6, um, it talks, uh, uh, as I said, about the uh, the eyes of, of the Lord, um, and verse 7, uh, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. We're accustomed to him saying that I will save them from the north, which is uh, a way of referring to Babylon and Assyria. But here he says, I'm going to bring them back from the east and from the west. Well, I think that that is referring to how the ten tribes had been taken into captivity by Assyria and spread literally all, all over the uh, the Near East, the, the Middle East. And so I think that it was God's intention at the time of the return from Babylon that he would have gathered together all Israel, the ten tribes and the two tribes, not just from Babylon, but the ten tribes from wherever they had been, all over, all over the, the Middle East, from the east and from the west, as well as north and south. Now, there's no evidence, really, that that really happened. So I think that what you're reading here is a potential situation that could have occurred, that at the time of the return, at the time the uh, exiles returned, the, some, well, let's say some sort of a kingdom of God could have been established. There could have been. Verse 4, old men and old women dwelling in the streets of Jerusalem with uh, prolonged life, every man with his staff in his hand for very age. This is the picture of Isaiah 65, which I think refers to the same potential, that lifespans would have been greatly increased. And I wondered if the emphasis on the increased lifespans was uh, because these were the, the men and women who would have seen the 
destruction of the temple would have gone into captivity as children uh, and yet now they would have come and seen Jerusalem rebuilt and yet in, in the time of Nehemiah when the, the temple is uh, rebuilt uh, the young people cry for joy but it's said that the old people wept and I think that it just shows that this potential prophecy was not fulfilled. Why did they weep? Perhaps because they realized that this temple that's been rebuilt is nothing like the, the former one. It's not at all according to the specifications of Ezekiel's temple. And so this is not to say that God's word will not ultimately come true. It will come true as we know when Jesus returns and when the kingdom of God is established on the earth. But it could have come true earlier. That's what I'm saying. And the same, I think, is true of the, the final verses where it talks about all the different cities, the Gentile world, taking hold of the Jewish people and coming with them to, verse 22, to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord, etc. Ten men, verse 23, taking hold out of all languages of the, the skirt of him that's a Jew, saying, we will go with, go with you. So this was the... Uh, potential that was possible but what happened well we know again from Nehemiah that instead of this they traded with the Gentiles um, they broke the Sabbath they they were not a light to the Gentile world but as I say all this will ultimately come true when the Lord Jesus comes back now this is such a, a tragedy that there is so much wasted potential but that is how unfortunately it is and it must be a, a tragedy for God to realize time and again that so much potential is wasted that so much that could be possible is not possible because we simply don't have the vision to believe that really it could be and we're just like they were at that time as Haggai describes them satisfied with our little a little plot of land and just, you know, give me a quiet life now, that's all I want, and not seeing the huge potential which there, there was, and not perceiving, as he says in verse 2, that God is in fact jealous and zealous uh, for his work in our hands to, to be fulfilled and to, to be successful. And so the conditionality of all this is, I think, brought out in verse uh, 15 to the 17 he says this is what I have thought in these days to do unto Jerusalem that is these kingdom prophecies here what we would call kingdom prophecies about the old men and women in the streets of Jerusalem and the children playing there and uh, ten men from the nations taking hold of him that is a Jew and going up to Jerusalem to worship God uh, this is what God thought to do but it didn't happen in those days, verse 15, because they didn't fulfill that potential. And there was a condition, and that's in verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. This is their enabling of all this potential. Speak every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oath. So then he wants them to be truthful, and to uh, execute truth and peace in their gates. Now, this does, of course, refer practically to simply telling the truth, but I think the idea is also of fidelity, fidelity to God and therefore to each other, of making the, the covenant of mercy and truth uh, that was made with Abraham 
and, to, and with David to actually live that out in life by being truthful. Now, there's been surveys done of how truthful people are. And one that I read that had a fairly big sample size uh, had 91% of people admitting that they lie about small things regularly. Now, that's huge. And I think that that is probably the case that there is something in human nature that is not truthful, that is inclined away from truth, that somehow reality is not pleasant to us on small things and big things, and so therefore we tend to get caught up in this untruthfulness. And when you're living in an untruthful society, if that survey is right, and 91% of people are regularly telling untruths about small things, uh, then Inevitably, everyone else tends to get caught up in the same thing. He exaggerates, so I shall exaggerate. You know, uh, And you get to a point where no one is really being truthful with themselves. And that's why people are so out of touch with themselves. Because what starts off as telling regular lies about little things becomes to be a part of how a person is. And it's really a way of escaping from reality. The lie may not necessarily be, be that badly motivated, um, but a desire to please other people, to say what they want to hear, um, it's all the same of running away from reality. And so God asks them to speak each one the truth to his neighbour. Now I think that that is a reflection of the fact that if we are in the covenant with God, that is the ultimate truth. Because mercy and truth are two words that are used very often about the covenant that God has made with Abraham and with David. One result of being in that covenant is to be truthful. Because if God has promised us that he really will give us the blessing promised to Abraham, eternal life on this earth in his kingdom by grace, then that is the greatest truth there could ever be. That is the ultimate truth. And there is no possibility that God would lie, that this is all just a big delusion. Now, because of that, we therefore ought to be truthful in all our ways. And as I say, it's harder than it might seem because we are surrounded by a world and a society of half-truths. And the problem is with this, once a critical mass of people behave like that, the other people tend to get caught up in it uh, as well. <clears throat> so then, God, by pure grace really, as I see in this chapter, is trying to forge ahead again with these people. He says in verse 12, <clears throat> The seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, the ground shall give her increase, the heavens shall give their dew. In other words, the famine that Haggai lamented a couple of months earlier is going to be lifted. Now, the famine was because they were just caught up with looking after themselves and trying to get their own harvests, building their own house rather than the house of God. Now, what happened? It could be that the people had responded to the challenge of Haggai, and therefore God was lifting the famine. 
That might have been the case for some of them, but a famine or, or the, the lack of water and dew and the giving of water and dew is something that affects everybody. I would submit that uh, it was only a minority at the very most that responded to Haggai's prophecy. And so I think God, by grace, is saying, well, look, anyway, even though you like that, my grace will forge ahead. OK, I'm going to lift this famine, but I so want you to respond. And this is the way of grace. It's not measure for measure. It's not saying, well, you know, you built your own house, not my house. You just worried about your own little uh, fields and your own uh, harvest, etc. Therefore, I'm not going to uh, sort of deal with you anymore. I, I sort of get the impression in this chapter that God is sort of clapping his hands and saying, right, okay, okay, I, I see it, I hear it, I see where you're at, but look, let's try again. I pour out my grace, I'm going to lift the famine, now go ahead. And uh, sadly, they, they still didn't. But this, I think, is how God deals with us, and it's how we should be dealing uh, with each other. Not measure for measure, but the outpoured grace that you see so clearly in, in God's dealings with us. He says in verse 13, <clears throat> So will I save you. And one version says, so will I endow you with salvation, that you may be a blessing. So it's this salvation by grace, as I read it, that he's, verse 12, he's going to lift the famine, which is just by grace, that's what I've suggested. Uh, he's going to save them by grace, so that you might be a blessing. Now this again is alluding to the terms of the covenant made with Abraham, that we are not only promised that we shall inherit the land forever, but that we shall be a blessing. That we shall be a blessing. If we're in Christ, by baptism into Christ, then all that is true of the promised seed of Abraham is true of us. And as he was a blessing in this earth, so also we are going to be a blessing. Now, we are a blessing in the sense that we bring people to blessing. In Acts 3, Peter defines the blessing when he says that uh, God has sent his son to bless you according to what he promised to Abraham in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So then the blessing of God is ultimately forgiveness. And we can bring other people to that because, uh, as uh, we said in verse 13, I will endow you with salvation so that you may be a blessing. I do believe that is a correct reflection of the Hebrew underlying those, those words. We are endowed with salvation in, in prospect so that we might be a blessing. The sense is, if we are sure that by God's grace I have been saved, that by God's grace I really will be in God's kingdom, then we become a blessing in the sense that we go out into this world with the good news of that blessing. Now, if we are not convinced of our own personal salvation. It seems to me we have no particularly good news to share with anybody else if all we are teaching them is, well, Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a judgment and who knows how we're going to get on, but, well, there's a, a chance, there's a fighting chance we might uh, get salvation. Then that is hardly good news. But if we are convinced that by grace this is all true for me, that if Jesus comes back right now, by God's grace I really will live forever, then we are inspired to be a blessing to others because we naturally cannot keep that good news to ourselves. We will share it 
no matter how uh, shy you are, no matter how you may feel that somehow you don't have the possibility to uh, maybe encounter people too much, somehow love finds a way and somehow conviction finds a way. And if you are convicted that really this is your situation, that we really will be saved and live forever if Jesus comes back right now, then somehow you will find a way to share that with, with others. So then, as I've said, this leads on to what he says really in uh, 16 and 17, that if this is the ultimate truth, if the mercy and truth that was promised to Abraham and David is the reality that we shall be in God's kingdom forever, you therefore will speak that truth, every man to his neighbour, both in terms of sharing that ultimate reality, that you know what, you really can live forever, and also on a practical level of being truthful. And so then, week by week, we take the, the bread and wine in order to remind ourselves of that covenant relationship, that the cup is the cup of the new covenant. This is the blood of the covenant. And this is ultimate truth. This is the greatest truth of the cosmos, beyond any kind of scientific proof, materi uh, truth, material truth, uh, 1 plus 1 equals 2, 2 plus 2 equals 4, all that kind of thing, far beyond all that kind of thing, on a totally different level, on the most profound level. The truth is that if we are in Christ, we by his grace will live forever. That is the ultimate and final truth. And insofar as that is underlined in our very consciousness, consciousness, we will therefore speak truth, that truth and truth in every way, to our neighbour.